Hi, I'm Dave Kapos, and you are listening to IP Fridays. Welcome. I'm the former director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the former chief IP lawyer for IBM, and now partner at the New York law firm Cravath, Swain, and more. And I'm really pleased to be on the program. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. My co-host Ken Suzanne and I are welcoming you to episode 143 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guest is David Kapos and we talk about patent eligibility, the recent moves of the EOIPO into the field of patents and we also address some arguments of patent critics. But before we jump into the interview, I have news for you. The European Patent Office has launched a new statistics tool, a dashboard for, the unitary, for patents with a unitary effect. And in this dashboard, it's very helpful. You can see the status of registrations. So, for example, there are 7,190 registered unitary effects uh, in this um, dashboard. And you can see the fields of technology and you can see the procedural language and the translation language. So it's really helpful to get a better understanding uh, what patents have a unitary effect uh, under the new UPC regime and what patents don't. Lu Pengqi, the Deputy Commissioner of the China National Intellectual Property Administration, SNIPA, has met with Shuichi Okoyama, the President of the AIPPI, and they discussed about the new advances in IP in China and um, Shuichi Okoyama also introduced the new World Congress in Istanbul. As you might have seen, Elon Musk has renamed Twitter to X and not very surprisingly, um, the new company runs into uh, trademark issues. There are numerous trademarks, earlier trademarks that are registered with the character X. So let's see how this will work out. Panasonic has launched the first major standard essential patents campaign at the Unified Patent Court against Oppo and Xiaomi. So now let's jump into the interview with David Kapos. Today's guest is Dave Kapos. If you don't know Dave, he has been the director of the USPTO and currently is partner at Cravath, Swain and Moore. He also has been the chief IP lawyer of IBM. Thank you, Dave, for being on the show. Yeah, hi, Rolf. Great to be here. So I thought about talking about a lot of different topics uh, that are currently on your mind and also on my mind. Um, let's start with the most interesting one that I think uh, is the most new and interesting development. The EOIPO uh, now thinks about taking care of some patent issues um, and some patent topics. Um, can you explain what they have in mind and what your opinion is about this? Yeah, thanks, Rolf. Yeah, it is indeed very controversial. So the EU IPO, of course, is Europe's trademark granting authority. It's not a patent granting authority up till now anyway. For decades since its institution, it's been a trademark granting authority located in Alicante, Spain. And they do a great job in the trademark area, by the way. Um, and then um, a few months ago, uh, the commission in Brussels um, leaked a document and then eventually published it and opened a comment period, um, uh, le leaked this proposal again and published it that would um, engraft into the EU IPO um, a new standard essential patent rate setting mandate and adjudicatory body that would be responsible for um, assessing uh, royalty rates for standard essential patents. And Rolf, um, 
you know, a couple of things going on here. One, the EU IPO just last year, its leader had made an emphatic statement saying the EU IPO has no patent competence. Um, and so it's quite ironic um, to have a, a proposal from uh, policymakers in Brussels to put a huge patent mission onto an agency that itself declared it has no patent competence. But set that aside because obviously things can change and with enough investment, you know, you can get, you can build up patent competence over time. Um, what, what really concerns me about this proposal is um, that it really amounts to government um, interference, and I, I'm not sure that's even a strong enough word, uh, into a marketplace that frankly is working just fine. And, and Europe, particularly Germany, but Europe in general, has been um, the bright light for the world, the standard setter for determining um, and advancing balanced policies um, uh, regarding standard essential patents and the licensing of SEPs. Policies that balance the interests of the implementers, which are trying to make products, and that's great, and the innovators, which are trying to make new innovations and go from 3G to 4G to 5G and the next to 6G, and that's great too, and we need them both to succeed. And so to have a marketplace that's actually working quite well and then to have um, you know, regulators come in and say, uh, we're just going to take this over, it's crazy. It's, frankly, it's crazy. Um, and, and then you could ask another question, which is, well, why is an American concerned about this? Isn't this like a European <laughs> thing? And I think that's always a fair question. And personally, I'm always very reluctant to express views about what's going on on the other side of the Atlantic or the other side of the Pacific, frankly. And I honestly sometimes bristle when, when people from other parts of the world express views about what the U.S. should do. I, you know, I find myself saying, well, thank you, but why don't you just figure out what you want to do and we'll figure out what we want to do. But this is not so simple. This is actually a global issue. It's not just a U.S. issue. And that's why the Secretary of Commerce here in the U.S. very quickly and, and, and I think almost uncharacteristically for this administration, which has been very cautious on IP issues, came out and quickly said, this is crazy. What are you doing? Well, you guys are hurting European interests, but you are also hurting U.S. interests and you are damaging the global innovation ecosystem. Stop it. Right. And, and um, uh, so that's where, you know, we all feel coming from this side of the Atlantic. You know, if this were just a European issue, we, you know, we'd be unhappy about it, but we uh, bite our tongue and, you know, and let others do what they want to do. But this is not just a European issue. This is a global issue. And it's setting um, policy and it's sending messages that are very damaging to a vibrant and healthy innovation ecosystem that balances all interests. So that's uh, Ralph, a bit of a long answer, but I felt like I needed to kind of explain what's going on with this proposal. A lot of people don't understand it, don't even know about it. I don't understand it as well. And why why do you think the EU made this move? Um, what was the reasoning behind this? What do you think? You, you are more into the politics behind this than I am. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question, Rolf. And, and, you know, without like going into you know, like per, people's personal agendas for advancement of their careers and things like that, which which gets, you know, way too personal for me to get into. Um, what I what I can say is that the the original leak proposal and then even the officially introduced one has a series of findings in it at the beginning that attempt to answer your question, that describe a problem that requires a solution. The problem problem is with the, the description of the problem, it's false. It cites absolutely no evidence to back up um, its statement that there is a problem. The basic statement of the problem is to say that um, relationships and licensing between SEP licensors and licensees doesn't work, it's broken, and it's hurting SMEs. The problem is that's false. And 
and there's no evidence cited for it. And the reason there's no evidence cited for it is that it is, in fact, false. Um, and there's been a whole raft of criticism that's come out. You know, I, I helped um, put together a study and a report that came out before this. It was like last year, if I remember right, or maybe very early this year, um, that um, used a data set to measure the n- number of lawsuits. Um, uh, is it just the U? I think it might be just the U.S. I forget if it's the U.S. and Europe. It doesn't try and get all of them worldwide, but you know the sort of the primary jurisdictions. Um, it, it's at least the U.S. U.S. And, and I forget if we were able to get European data also. Um, I think it's just the U.S. By the way, so what it did was measure the number of SEP related lawsuits going back for you know like twenty years or so, and what it found is that the numbers are actually quite small. Normally. Any given year, it might be one or two or even zero. There have been a few years where there have been spikes to around 10 or a dozen or something like that. <clears throat> and it turns out that those spikes are very, uh, very idiosyncratic. In fact, doing this from memory, but in each of the two spikes that I recall, um, about half of the lawsuits were attributable to one company, Apple, one company, right? So if you take that idiosyncratic nature away, it turns out that the number of lawsuits involving SCPs is really small. Again, many years, you don't even need three fingers to count them. Um, and in other years, you know, you need at most, uh, you know, a couple of hands. And this is all suits, you know, all parties combined. So we concluded from that data that um, and oh, and oh, by the way, the numbers have been trending down in the last decade. So we concluded from that data, there isn't a problem. The marketplace is actually working great. There are literally thousands of SEP licenses being being signed, and to have like just a few disputes, some years no disputes that go into court, it's noise level. You can't characterize this as being some kind of endemic um, problem with the system. And so that was one of the things that surprised me, Ralph, coming back to your question, what, what problem are they trying to solve? When, when the statement of the problem is flatly false, you, you know, you've got to right away get all your antenna up saying something's really wrong here. Something really strange is going on. And that is the case here. There is no problem to be solved. This is all made up. And the commission needs to receive a message particularly from people in Europe, your side of the Atlantic, to say, this is crazy. You need to stop this and move on and solve real problems because you're going to do real damage to the European and global um, innovation ecosystem. And you're sending really bad messages to countries in other parts of the world who would very much like to see um, royalty rates for SEPs go down, 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 which means depriving innovators of the capital to reinvest, which means there won't be 6G and 7G and and beyond that at anywhere near the levels of innovation we've all gotten used to. And that's a really bad result. Yes, um, so it's interesting. Um, Maybe we don't really know the true reason why the EU is addressing a non-problem at the moment. Um, But uh, let's see how this will work out over the next months, I'm sure that also the large users of the system will address this or have already addressed this. And let's see. Um, so um, you're saying you encourage the European players to really um, put some pressure on the EU to uh, think over this um, move, basically. Right, right. Right. Um, one other topic that was on your mind um, was uh, patent eligibility, and there have been a lot of decisions in the past, and some really standing out from the Supreme Court, um, and th- they might have caused some problems or solved problems. Um, maybe you want to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks, Rolf. So this is the area of what we call Section 101, or patent eligibility. And it's another area where, you know, like in SEPs, 
where Europe has led and done a great job. Europe also has done a great job uh, on managing the eligibility issue, managing it into being a, another non-issue, if you will, and spending the vast majority of the efforts in, in assessing patentability and um, in validity of patents, uh, um, focusing those efforts where they can be productively focused, inventive step, novelty, disclosure, quality, those kinds of issues. In the U.S., of course, in the last, um, I guess it's now 15 or so years, um, we've really gotten hung up uh, and, and twisted into a knot on the topic of eligibility or sub Section 101. And um, so bad that, uh, you know, our Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which is in the U.S., the only federal, federal appeal court that manages patent issues. So it's not like there's like 20 of these courts, there's just one. And there's 12 active judges. And as of last year, if I remember right, before some judges turned over, not one or two or three, but all 12 judges of the federal circuit had come out in various independent statements saying, we can't manage this situation. This law is broken. We can't handle the law that is our unique responsibility and expertise to manage, understand, and implement and apply. That's really dramatic when all 12 judges, right? And some people in the U.S. here have said, oh, well, this is just judges who have a, a pro-patent mandate. Um, and the answer to that is no, I'm sorry. All 12 judges declared the laws broken. Every solicitor general since when I was in the government, government accounting office, um, you know, major members of Congress. I haven't seen one member of Congress say the law is working great. Um, there have been some who've avoided the issue, and those who've confronted the issue, like Senators Tillis and Coons, have come out very honestly and accurately and said, you know what, we need to admit it, this law is really broken. So then comes along Senator Tillis last year and introduces um, a bill to fix that law. Um, recently, I want to say last month, maybe it was June, um, Senators Tillis and Coons introduced an upgraded and improved version of the bill, and now it's called the PIRA, Patent Eligibility Restoration Act. Um, and in my assessment, it, we need it desperately in the U.S. Um, it will go a long way toward aligning standards um, globally because every other country in the world, whether it's you know the EU generally through the EPO or Germany, the UK, you know, um, the countries in Asia, all have an appropriate standard. Um, the US is the outlier here. And Pure would um, go a long way toward, you know, what I would I won't quite call it harmonization in the sense we think of that term, but in realigning global standards around eligibility. And importantly, it would fix the broken law, clarify um, that, um, uh, that yes, the human genome is not eligible for patent protection. We all agree on that. And yes, um, purely cultural or economic inventions, people talk about things like marriage proposals, um, are not eligible for patent protection, no matter how clever they or creative they might be. And even if they're implemented on a computer, they're still not eligible for patent protection. But other than that, other than those kinds of categories, you know, um, it, it, inventions, broadly speaking, um, that that uh, uh, that have, you know, utility and touch on uh, uh, technology in some way should be eligible for patent. Uh, protection. <clears throat> and and the real heavy lifting should be done by the inventive step and obviousness and, and disclosure doctrines. So the legislation is getting you know a lot of notice here in the US and I hope worldwide. I think it's very positive. Is it everyone's like perfect solution? No, it's not my perfect solution. It includes lots of compromises that are aimed at addressing the legitimate interests and issues of those who are more cautious about uh, patent protection and who want to see strong eligibility standards. So I would say it still maintains credible eligibility standards, but clarifies them dramatically um, and will settle the U.S. law um, to a place that we can manage it again. So I hope folks look at that legislation and I hope folks, 
you know, and frankly, again, this is a little bit like the last issue we talked about. Yeah, in a way, it's a U.S. issue, but it's actually not just a U.S. issue, but it, because it affects companies everywhere, and it puts an overhang um, of a negative nature on on invention incentives, on innovation incentives. So I hope folks in Europe and Asia will take a close look um, and will be supportive um, uh, to those of us who are trying to fix that law. I have a European question from a European standpoint. Um, um, what I have, uh, what I remember is that um, the U.S. Um, the U.S. decisions always danced around the topic of technicity or a technical feature or whether a technical feature must or whether there must be a technical contribution to an invention, uh, which is the, the core of the European eligibility um, ideas. Um, was that addressed in the recent proposal or um, does that play a role or is it somewhere hidden? What do you think? Like, uh, You know, it's a, it's a, um, a tough issue, Ralph, in, in the version of the legislation that Senator Tillis introduced last year, um, uh, technological contribution technology was front and center. Um, and, and it was, it was it, that the, you know, the word was used. Um, and it garnered, I think, fairly a lot of criticism here in the U.S. because it's hard to define. I know folks in Europe and other places have struggled with defining what does technical mean, and it moves with time, and it's constantly evolving. And so I think smartly, um, Senator Tillis and Senator Coons, in the updated version of the legislation, moved away from any overt mention of technical or technology or technological contribution. But I do feel like, you know, you mentioned, I forget what the word we used was, Rolf, impliedly or under the cover, some under the surface. And I do feel like the concept um, is imbued in the legislation under the surface by those categories that are excluded, you know, purely economic, cultural, right? And this notion that adding, um, uh, a, adding a, um, an implementation on a computer, you know, taking a, a cultural or economic activity and implementing it on a computer does not confer uh, patent eligibility. I think without mentioning the word technology, the new legislation gets us to about the same place. So, um, you know, again, smartly, senators... Tillis and Coons, learning from the great work that's been done in Europe, but also the struggles that have that have occurred, and the fact your system is fundamentally somewhat different from ours, um, and and the you know the notion in Europe of implementing um, a, um, a a technical effect test in the in the obviousness or inventive step test it works for Europe, but we can't really implement that here in the U.S. Um, in any neat way or any way that would be politically feasible. So we had to find a different way, and, and this was the way. Yeah, and I also don't know whether it really works in Europe because uh, they decide on a case-by-case -case basis every time newly, um, like whether something has a technical contribution or not. So um, so it's also difficult. You, you have basically a system where you have to dig through thousands of cases whether something... Well, is has a technical contribution or not? Uh, why does uh, improving security of a system have a technical contribution and encryption? But why does something else doesn't have a con technical contribution? Also, it's sometimes very difficult to understand, and it's um, just in a matter of memorizing all this case law or having a good database. So it's also not a very not a perfect system at all. Too, it's just a very different approach. <laughs> I agree. Um, so one other uh, one other thing that was on my mind, uh, but also on your mind, uh, years years back uh, on your mind um, was um, the there was a strong movement of patent critics. They and patent critics, uh, some also quite um, known patent critics said, "Well, we have to abolish the patent system. It's not working, and therefore uh, we don't need it." Um, And uh, so I wanted to talk with you about the arguments of these patent critics and address these 
arguments a little bit, um, as you have done uh, for the last years also in talks and in papers. Um, maybe first we talk about maybe the most important um, argument that has been brought forward by these critics. Um, and they say there is really no evidence uh, that patents really increase innovation or productivity. Um, what what do you think? Like, what what would be your response to these voices? Yeah, I, I think you know, um, there's actually not just evidence. There's like 500 years of evidence um, uh, that that no other system for rewarding innovation um, has ever been created that comes anywhere close to the patent system at doing its job. You know, a, a Stanford professor. Steve Haber published an interesting paper a number of years ago, I want to say maybe seven, eight years ago or so, in which he surveyed um, a large number of economies over a period of hundreds of years. Uh, and and he, he's a, like an economic historian, not, a, not an IP attorney, an economic historian at the Hoover Institute um, at Stanford, And so he used economic data going back literally, again, hundreds of years to um, throughout the existence of, um, uh, of, of patent systems and, and measured um, strength of economic activity um, against um, strength of protection for invention. And what he found was there was no example in, in all of the data set of um, a country that had sustained economic performance. There was no example of a country that had sustained economic performance correlated with weak intellectual property protection. And there was also no example of a country that had weak economic performance covered with strong intellectual property protection. So to put that in the positive, in every single instance that could be found, right, over a large data set, many countries and a long period of time, um, strong economic performance was positively correlated with strong intellectual property protection and weak economic performance was correlated with weak um, uh, intellectual property protection. So, and, that, and that's just one um, study that sticks out in my mind. You can go through the economic literature, uh, people like Zarina Khan at Bowdoin College, uh, you know, here in, in Maine, um, among others, uh, um, have done research going back hundreds of years that shows, uh, you know, writ large um, that strong um, intellectual property protection generally and strong patent protection in particular um, produce um, sustained quality of economic performance. You know, and, and I'll give you one other example, Ralph, and this is going from the large data set to the N equals one. I, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, I'm here in New York City and I work, uh, you know, um, up in, in a skyscraper and I'm looking out at other skyscrapers um, here in Manhattan. I had a meeting a while ago in one of those other skyscrapers with a, um, private equity investors uh, in a, a company that manages literally billions of dollars and they direct investments um, into various companies. This particular one has a big um, you know, investment set of investment funds that they run in growth stage companies and startups and tech investments think, you know, biotech and artificial intelligence and med tech and, you know, on and on. And, um, you know, we are talking about a particularly troubled situation involving, you know, one or more of their funds that was in trouble because of the problem with patent eligibility in the U.S. And this guy, you know, big guy, right? At the end of the meeting, Uh, when we were all getting up to leave, he took me aside and kind of pressed me a bit. He didn't, you know, like assault me or anything, but he kind of pressed me and he said, listen to me, Sonny. He said, uh, my job, when I come, when I leave the office at the end of the day, 
I got to have more money for my investors than when I came into the office at the beginning of the day. And he said, if you fancy people with your intellectual property protection can give me that through strong IP that protects the innovations of startup and growth stage companies, I'm happy to invest billions of dollars in helping them grow. He said, otherwise, I'm just going to put my money in pork bellies. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Because I always thought thought about how to connect innovation to economic success, you know, and you just mentioned it. I mean, um, the startups who are innovative and innovative companies, they don't get funding unless they protect their innovation with patents, you know, and that in turn will lead to the um, business case that, of course, then they have more money to invent even more stuff and then be more innovative and so on. Exactly. And, And also the, the large IP offices, um, they regularly publish reports that companies are more successful, economically more successful if they protect their intellectual property. Um, but one thing is that these patent critic, critics say that um, uh, the competitors, they can't really um, further develop a technology if it's patented and therefore they are blocked from developing this technology. That's how do you address this? argument yeah well well for, first of all of course patents are are limited in duration one of the miracles of the patent system is they expire um, <laughs> and once they expire anyone can suddenly use the technology for free this is why you know in the u.s as well as germany and many other countries you've got such a vibrant generics um, pharmaceutical industry with the vast majority of medicines including prescription medicines that are insanely inexpensive um, uh, thanks to the fact that patents have expired and, and, and that exist thanks to the existence of the patent system in the first place, right? So we get both. We get this great pipeline of new medicines constantly popping. And there, um, you know, I've been involved in some that have popped within the last week, and I'm sure there are many others. Um, Uh, at the same time, we get them going generic um, on a very regular basis and, and price competition moving in. So, so the first part of the answer to the question, Rolf, is, look, that's why patents expire, um, so that, that anyone can go and use the invention. The second part is, um, and I've been involved in this too recently, um, it turns out most patents can be worked around. Um, and... That's another great effect of the patent system by forcing disclosure of the invention. You know, the patentee has to actually, uh, in the bargain, um, invite um, uh, clever, creative third parties to invent around the patent and find ways to improve upon the patent that don't infringe the patent. Um, and, uh, and that happens regularly. And I've been involved in that happening recently. Um, in a case that I'm working on, and it's it's um it's a great comfort of the patent system to actually work with the technical people with the patent claims of some competitor in front of you and say, okay, so how would we go about doing X, Y, and Z differently? And then actually have improved methods of doing X, Y, and Z better than what existed in the patent and that avoid the patent. Right. So that's the second part of the answer the patent system is a great tool to encourage innovation to encourage alternative solutions to the patented problem then of course the third part of the answer that people um uh, overlook quite frequently and i certainly knew this well when i was at ibm for many years just take a license go you'd be amazed if you need a license to someone else's patent and you go out and and ask them for a license in the vast majority of the cases, they'll be more than happy to grant you. In fact, going back, Ralph, to the SEP issue we discussed before, um, over 90% of the entire patent stack that covers 4G and soon that covers 5G, over 90%, we're talking about tens of thousands of patents representing tens of billions of dollars of investment, is available from one source, Avance, a patent licensing pool, for a flat fee of for installation in automobiles so this is a very heavyweight use 15 that's it less than right. the price to wash your car once 
Right. Less than it costs to wash your car once, um, the auto manufacturer gets a com complete coverage under almost the entire patent stack. So that stands for the proposition, just go ask for a license. It's not that right. hard. And, and in most cases, you'll be able to get one um, uh, and it'll be very affordable. And and one thing you mentioned uh, is that um, the patentees, they have to disclose their inventions at least uh, 18 months after filing the patent. So actually, and everyone can just read all the great inventions and read about them and combine these ideas and have new ideas and be actually more innovative because they have all this information at their fingertips. Um, and then file their own patents and then, for example, ask the original patentees, well, do you like our new invention? You want a cross-license or something, you know? Exactly. And, um, so, um, yeah. <laughs> right. So it's, um, yeah, the arguments are not not too convincing, but I wanted to address them because these were the maybe the most prevalent arguments um, cited by patent critics. Another thing that you also briefly touched on already in your answer was that um, some people say that drugs are so expensive because of all the patents um, and some drugs are protected by whatever 50 patents and they can't be circumvented and you can't go around, work around them. And so you have to, you, you can't make the drug um, and people die because people don't get the medication What do you say? <laughs> yeah, so Ralph, that it's you know it's a hard problem. Um, we all want medicines to be available to everybody, um, and every new medicine that gets invented, you know, we um, uh, we grieve for people who need access to it and can't get access to it. Um, and so, so the the solution to this problem of access to medicines. It can't be tough luck. It can't be that. We've got to be better than that. But we also have to step back and ask the mature question, so what's really the root of the problem? Is it patents or is it drug pricing and bigger issues with um, reimbursement systems in countries including the U.S. as well as others? And what you find when you ask that more thoughtful question is the patent system's got nothing to do with um, issues with drug pricing. You know, this is another area where I did a study and published a paper, I want to say about a year ago or so, um, using U.S. Uh, government data uh, about the healthcare, the healthcare spend of the U.S. And it's huge. And it turns out I called it a slice of the, the slice of a slice problem, uh, the name of the paper, um, you know, how when you take a small slice of a pie and then you take another small slice of that small slice, you wind up with a vanishingly small number and, and how that um, phenomenon needs to be considered here. From analyzing that U.S. government data, what I found first was that The total, and I'm doing this again from memory, so my numbers could be a little bit off, but the total amount of the U.S. healthcare spend that is attributable to, um, uh, to branded pharmaceuticals is in the, um, you know, small teens kind of percentage. So it's a small slice of a multi-trillion dollar pie. And then when you take that slice And you actually then break it down into um, <clears throat> branded pharmaceutical products that are patent protected. It's another small slice. And it turns out that when you add those two small slices up, it's somewhere around 8%. So, so well under 10% um, of the total U.S. healthcare spend is attributable to, um, uh, to branded pharmaceuticals that are protected by patents. So from there, I observed even if you totally wipe out the patent system, let's say you just say, we're going to wipe this patent system out totally, no more patents at all. You've not even made a dent in, right? Because there's still the manufacturing costs and the distribution costs and all that. I mean, you've maybe chopped a few percent off of the um, U.S. healthcare spend. 
And what does it cost you? There would be absolutely no innovation, right? People say, well, maybe the NIH can fill the gap. The NIH is spend on healthcare, the National Institutes for Health here in the U.S., is a small, tiny fraction of what it takes to bring a product to market. So you look at that data, and then you look at one other piece of data, which is the OECD's list of the top 300 um, uh, medicines in the world. Last I looked at that, um, uh, there was a study a number of years ago, and again, I'm doing this from, from memory, so I may not be exactly right, but my strong recollection is that of the top 300 drugs treating you know every major ailment you can imagine and then some something like 13 of them were patent protected so it's like a tiny percentage it's it, again these are rounding error levels that are attributable to patents and then when you step back and ask the question you know what would happen to the innovation pipeline and would new drugs get um, uh, get announced, get created, and, and the billion dollars or more that it costs to bring them to market, would that get spent? Um, absent a patent system, the answer emphatically is no. So you wind up concluding that, you know, to the contrary of concerns about patents blocking patient access, the patent system is likely the most significant cause and contributor to people having access to new drugs over a period of time. And again, remember the patents expire um, uh, and then generics come in. You know, one other thing, Ralph, you mentioned in your question, you know, people concerned that some drugs are protected by 50 patents or so. So I think you're referring, without mentioning it, to a data set in a number of studies that have been published by a group called IMAC, the Association for Medical something or other, um, uh, uh, that those studies and that data have been roundly criticized, um, including by members of the U.S. Senate who have called for um, much more transparency from IMAC. Um, from from what I know about the IMAC data, it's just false. It includes things like patents that have expired, patents that were never granted and were abandoned, um, the patent portfolio globally. So you could take a drug that's got one patent in Germany and one patent in the U.S., but it's been patented in 100 countries and they would count that, um, you know, some, some huge number of patents for it. So as far as I'm aware, um, the data from IMAC isn't just suspect, it's false. And it's a very unfortunate because it's misleading and it's misleading policy members, policymakers into making really bad decisions. Uh, this is why members of the Senate have sent letters calling on um, the Patent Office to study and assess the veracity, right, of the IMAC data. And I believe those studies are going on, but nothing's come of it yet. I believe when all is said and done, we'll learn um, as the particular drug makers have come out with data, um, uh, you know, loudly protesting when, when IMAC has identified supposedly specific drugs that have huge numbers of patents, the drug makers themselves have come out and said, this is crazy. You could look in the orange book and what you'll see is we've got whatever, two, three, four patents. That's it. That's our patent estate. It's all very transparent. These guys are making things up. Um, and so I think stepping back then, Rolf, um, I, I, you know, uh, you can always find what I call an N equals one, some instance of someone doing something that didn't work out or turned out to be dumb or was a mistake or whatever, or maybe even dishonest. It, it, you know, bad things happen very, very occasionally. But when you look across the system in the um, life sciences area, what you find is that... Um, uh, access to medicines is a challenge, but it's got nothing to do with the patent system. Um, that the patent system uh, um, causes, but it just doesn't doesn't just incent. It causes. It enables the enormous investments required to make new products and get them to market. Um, and uh, and the the miraculous events that we've had over the last several years, including the COVID vaccine and the follow-on treatments 
not to mention, you know, other, um, you know, eye-popping innovations, you know, curing macular degeneration and cancers and people who, you know, have uh, are on a basic, basically a death sentence who can be saved through these um, amazing innovations. That's all to the credit of the patent system, and we ought to be celebrating the system and uh, and not decrying it for its achievements. Right, and and uh, what comes to my mind is also that there's uh, one um, one instrument that can be used by governments if they see there's an epidemic and that there needs to be access to patented medicine. They can issue a compulsory license to. Uh, to certain patents, and sometimes that happens in some countries, and that's also a tool that governments can use. So, I think um, what you said is completely right, and and underlines the most important arguments against uh, the arguments of the patent critics uh, in in this uh, for for this topic of the um, high-priced medicine um, uh, and the drug patents. But this is also a tool that governments can use, of course. Um, mm -hmm. um, one other, one other, uh, two other things that I wanted to address, if it's possible, because we are running out of time, I see. <laughs> But maybe you have a brief um, assessment about these two questions. One, one uh, thing that is uh, often cited by patent critics is that most uh, of the counterfeit goods, they come from China and you can't enforce patents in China. And one other thing is that patents are too expensive and it's too expensive to enforce them. So what do you say? <laughs> yeah. So on the China part, look, you know, I, before the pandemic, I spent a lot of time in China, still follow the system there closely um, uh, and have for a long time. Patent enforcement in China has got to be quite good. Um, in the large majority of cases, it's fast, it's inexpensive. Um, the courts tend to do a good job on the large majority of cases. So for those who um, are of the view that the patent system is weak in China, I think you need to update your understanding of that and actually look at the data and, um, uh, and, and trends in the last, you know, say, five to seven years. So China patent system, much, much better than it was in, in, in the past. Um, relative to um, uh, your second question, um, so go back, give me that question again. I want to make sure I've got it exactly. Yeah, um, some people say the patent system is too expensive. It's too yeah. expensive to get patents and especially to enforce patents. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, so Rolf, um, Patents are expensive. Um, for hundreds of years, they've been called the sport of kings. I didn't make that term up. I don't necessarily love it, but it is what it is. Um, it's like many things in life uh, that are that are you know just expensive, um, and there's you know a limited amount we can do about that. Um, what I will say is that new approaches um, have been helpful including the Unified Patent Court in Europe uh, that was inaugurated recently there um, that I think will provide new avenues and, um, and more cost-effective ways to enforce patents. Um, uh, you've got additionally more of a focus on um, pro bono access to patent protection, both in the U.S., um, and internationally through a program that WIPO administers, um, the International um, IAP, International um, Patent Pro Bono Program, that is up and running in a number of countries and expanding all the time to provide pro bono, so free access to patent protection for people who don't have um, adequate economic means. And then the other thing I'd mention is there's a whole you know, industry that's developed really globally that um, you know, essentially brings venture funding to the patent world that gets um, <clears throat> patentees um, and inventors access to economic resources if they've got strong inventions and strong patents. Um, so uh, there, there are more options now than there ever were before. Um, there's 
you know, you know, uh, uh, invention backed financing is becoming uh, more available, certainly in the U.S. I'm even hearing about it in India, in addition to other countries. So there, there, um, there are a lot of specialized vehicles available now that for someone who's got a great invention can help bring capital to it, capital to protect the invention, capital to develop the invention, capital eventually to defend the invention. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, this has been a very long interview, but quite interesting. And a lot of interesting thoughts have been presented. Um, so thank you very much for being on IP Fridays. Yeah, my pleasure, Rolf. Thanks for the great questions and the fun discussion. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.